have been in a summer series called Radical, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And each week we've been looking at these very tough things that Jesus said that sometimes we have a hard time understanding. And it doesn't get any easier this week. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 38. We look at the words of Jesus. <coughs> you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now we begin with context. Let's get our context here. He says, you have heard that it was said. And then he quotes an Old Testament law where it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, let's be very clear that what was existing before an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it was the world's ethics. And the world's ethics said unlimited revenge. In other words, if you kill my son, not only will I come and kill your son, but I'll kill your whole family. I'll wipe out your whole family. I might even, if I'm mad enough, wipe out your entire tribe. It was in that context that the word of God came, the Old Testament law came to give a, a, a better reference, a legal reference, and the legal ethic to replace the world's ethic was basically limited punishment. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, like for like. And that was given to the court. That was given as a guidance to the court. It was given to the collective body of how to measure out punishment whenever there was something that had taken place. Let's be clear. The Old Testament eye for an eye and tooth for tooth was not condoning retaliation, but rather limiting it. It allowed a response to injustice on the basis of like for like. It restrained the hot-headed revenge inflicting injury far beyond what had been received. Now, also it's very important to understand that this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth limited punishment versus unlimited revenge was given to the court. It was given to the collective group. It was never, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was never given to individuals. It was given to the collective. And it was given for a couple of reasons. One is so that people did not have to take justice into their own hands. It, because the society was taking care of that. The court was taking care of that. The second reason is so that it would be a determinant for any other further evil activities. In fact, in Deuteronomy, the 19th chapter where it's talking about this, it says this. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. So the whole premise of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not something that Jesus is putting down. Rather, what he's doing is he's addressing a rabbinical tradition that took this from a civil matter or a civil instruction and, and, and twisted it and perverted it to personal revenge. And, and we still hear the same thing today. Tit for tat, butter for fat. You kill my dog, I'll kill your cat. All right? And you hear people all the time say, well, I'm going to get him back because doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth? It does say that. 
But it says that to the government. And, and what you need to understand is that when Jesus came and he said, you've heard that it's been said, he was not removing that as a guideline for the government. There are a lot of people who believe that we should never go to war and, and no one should ever suffer for a crime, that we should never bear arms on behalf of the innocent. And that's not what this is teaching. Uh, Jesus lets stand the injunction to the collective force to protect the innocent. And we know that for a part because of what it says in the New Testament. In Romans the 13th chapter, verse 3, Paul writes, he says, For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it, the authorities, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings the wrath on the one who practices evil. First uh, Peter 2, verses 13 and 14 says somewhat of the same thing. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For the sake of God's righteousness and human justice, we must uphold the law and insist that others do so as well under the threat of punishment. As long as human sinfulness exists, evil will have to be restrained by both the law and the threat of punishment. And so Jesus was not criticizing an eye for eye and a tooth for tooth. He was criticizing the misapplication of that principle. It's not for individuals, it's for the government. It's for the collective to protect the innocent. Christ was then telling us how as followers of God, we're to respond on a personal level to aggression. And in case we wonder what he's saying, he gives us four illustrations. The illustrations are obviously are not exhaustive, neither are they prescriptive. They're just descriptive. He said, for example, this is what you might see. Somebody slaps you on the cheek, then you turn to them the other cheek. The greatest insult at that time was someone to slap you in public. And the greatest insult was not just to slap you, but slap you with the back of their hand. And he says, if somebody does that, you say, well, go ahead and slap the other one too while you're at it, okay? He said that. Now, that's a tough thing to hear, isn't it? He, he went on to say that if someone sues you for your shirt, then give them your coat also. Very shocking in that day. Because in that day, they didn't have all the big clothes closets we have today. Typically, a, a, a normal man would have two shirts. He would have one to wear uh, during the day, and then that gave him another shirt to be hanging up on the line on laundry day. But he only had one coat, because the coat was that outer garment that he threw on, and it not only served as his coat, but when he lay down at night, it actually served as his blanket or his covering to keep him warm in the winter. So this is pretty shocking what Jesus says. He says, somebody sues you for your shirt, give him your coat also. In fact, there was actually a law in that day that you could sue somebody for their coat, but you had to give it back to them before nightfall. So they would have a blanket. And Jesus says, give them your coat as well. And, th and then he says, if someone compels you to go a mile, go two miles. Now, in that day, obviously, the Hebrew people were under the occupation of the Roman government, and the Roman government... Whenever they came to a town, they would put mile markers. In fact, you could even go to Israel today, and you can go to some archaeological digs, and you will find the mile markers that the Romans put there. And they put a, a, a marker approximately every mile. 
Now, the way they measured a mile, they measured it as uh, a thousand paces. A pace was basically one step, two step. If you measure that for a typical man, that's about five feet. So a thousand of those would be 5,000 feet. Our mile today is uh, 5,280 feet. So about equivalent to our mile, you still find those mile markers. And in that day, a Roman soldier by law as an occupier could compel you to carry his load, but never more than one mile. And so it was a fairly typical thing for some Roman soldier to look at a young man and say, here boy, carry my pack. And he knew what he had to do. He had to walk at least a mile away from his home, a mile away from where he was going by law. And what would happen is they would do it grudgingly. They would be uh, whispering uh, curse words under breath. They would stomp and they were watching for that mile marker. And as soon as they got to that mile marker, before the Roman soldier could reach over to get his back, they'd drop it in the dirt and they'd walk away. And here Jesus saying, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his pack for a mile, when you get to that mile marker and he's trying to reach for the pack because he knows you're going to throw it in the dirt, you just smile at him and say, well, I think I'll just go another mile. And in doing so, you'll shock him with your generosity. You'll shock him and he'll wonder what's different about you, a Christ follower. And then he goes on to say, do not turn away someone who wants something from you. Do not push away someone who would borrow from you. By the way, let me just kind of tell you my philosophy on borrowing. I would never lend anybody any money that you weren't willing to give to them. That just kind of solves any future conflicts. If you don't, if you don't have enough to give them, then, then, then don't lend it to them. In fact, we do that as a church. There'll be people who come and we're always paying for people's uh, electric bill when they're in times of distress. So we'll pay for a car repair or something. We rarely give anybody money but when we do, when somebody's in an unusual situation and it's a larger amount of money, we'll typically make it a loan. Now, don't tell them, but if they don't pay it back, it's okay with us. But what we always say is this is interest-free for a year. After a year, if you get a job or you are able to pay this off, how big of installments can you make? And we'll make them as small as we need to make until Jesus returns if we have to because we think it's healthy for somebody to return the money and we say to them if you return this money it allows us to be generous to the next person but we would never loan money that we would have to come and get from somebody or that we would uh, be in conflict with them that's what Jesus is saying is when someone slaps you on the cheek or sues you for your shirt or asks you to go for a mile or seeks some money from you you give it to them now what you might think is that Jesus here is saying that his ethic is certainly different than the ethic of the world, which says un unlimited revenge is different from the legal, which is limited punishment. It's really about generosity. But it is limited generosity. And you say, how is it limited? Well, it's right here in the passage. If you look at it, there are some governors to this generosity. Uh, one of the governors is the true need of the person. Uh, you notice here when it talks about lending money, it doesn't tell you how much to lend. It just says, do not turn them away. In other words, you're to pay attention to the true need of the person and, and give them what they need or give what is necessary to live at peace with someone. 
Uh, I love, and I've shared it before, what my wife does. My wife creates these little mercy bags that she carries around the car and she puts in my car. And what she puts in there, she doesn't put money for the homeless. She puts stuff that she knows that they would need. She puts clean socks. Uh, she puts water. Uh, she puts uh, things like uh, a copy of the scripture in there. She just puts stuff. There's food things that they can eat without having utensils. And what she's trying to do is say, you know, I don't know what their need is, and so I want to give them some basic things that anybody without a home would be able to use but would not enable them to abuse themselves or to uh, feed their addiction. She's paying attention to the need, and that would determine that. I've got another friend that carries around $10 McDonald cards and gift cards in their car because they know that people need food. Now, here's the danger many times is the danger, we think, is helping somebody who doesn't need any help. That's not the danger. The greatest danger is not helping somebody who truly does need help. And we've got to take one risk in order to avoid the other risk. And so one of the things that would, would determine how much we gave and what we gave, what would limit it is what the true need of the person, which means you have to treat people like individuals. You have to take the time to find out what's really going on in someone's life. And that may be the greatest gift of all, the personal attention, not the resource that you give. You, you might have to stop and, and ask the question, why has this person struck me? What's going on in their life? What kind of pain is there that they would uh, think that this was normal and to care about them as individuals? Uh, one of my favorite life verses is, comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, so you've heard me mention it before, but it bears uh, insight here at this particular point. First Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak, but be patient. Slow down. Pay attention to all men. See that no one uh, repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for the other one and for all people. In other words, the governor is what's really good for them. And notice what he, he gives us three categories of people. He says the unruly doesn't, they don't need help. You don't give help to the unruly. You give them admonishment. The greatest gift that you can give someone who's being unruly is to tell them what's really going on, to speak the truth with love. But there are some other folks who are faint-hearted, and you don't give a handout to the faint-hearted. You encourage them. You say, I know you can do this. You give them an opportunity to work. It's only the weak that you help, the people who can't help themselves you help. You have to apply differently to different people this limited generosity. It's also limited, second of all, by our resources. I think it's very, very interesting, and it's subtle in the passage, but pay attention to it. It says, if somebody smites you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek. It doesn't say hand them a baseball bat and say go to town. In other words, not an unlimited non-aggression here. There, there is a point at which you protect yourself to be a good steward of your own body. But you know what? You could probably give somebody a second slap, and in doing so, because think about what normally happens. They slap, you slap, they slap, you slap, they slap. And you end up with seven or eight slaps instead of one. God's way really is better, okay? Or, or notice what it says here. It says if somebody sues you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. Notice he didn't say, and give them your trousers. I'm glad he didn't say that. <laughs> I can have the coat. I'm going to keep the trousers. Or, or one mile. He, he didn't say, if the Roman soldier asks you to go one mile, go as far as he wants you to go. He didn't say that. He just said, give him one more mile. 
There's a limitation that's here, the reasonable limitation, something that you can give. And this is always important that we only give that which we can afford. We don't want to be writing physical checks or emotional checks that we cannot cover. And so there is a built-in limitation here. And the third limitation is whatever the need is for the power of the second mile. Say with me here, the power of the second mile. What, what is enough to shock a person in understanding that you're generous because God has been generous to you? The law says go the first mile. Love says go the second mile. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men the Lord is near. That word gentle there in that passage, some of you have a translation that says let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men. The root word literally means to go beyond justice. To go beyond what is fair. See, here's what many of us allow to be the governor in our limited generosity. We allow that governor to be our rights. Well, this is a fair thing. This is my right. And as Americans, we love to talk about our rights, don't we? But the Bible doesn't say that our generosity ought to be limited by our rights. Many times we make our, our generosity governed or limited by the merit of the other person. The scripture doesn't say anything here about the merit of the other person, whether they deserve our generosity or, or not. Aren't you glad that God didn't allow that to be a governor for his love for us? That we deserved it, that we merited it? No, only their true need, our excess resources, and the need for the power of the second mile. Somebody has said it like this, when a Christian has done his duty, he's half done. I like that. Or Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 17, that says this, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it is possible with you, live at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't miss verse 20 and 21. But if your enemy, your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Look at those two scriptures. There in verse 20, he says, For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Jesus is not advocating unlimited acquiescence. He is giving us a new, more powerful strategy to defeat evil. And it is good. Verse 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but actually overcome the evil with good. It's a more powerful force than aggression. He says, do not allow the evil person to bring you back down to their level of morality, but rather with your love, lift him up to your level and to the level of the Lord. Overcome evil with good. Now you may ask me, but Steve, come on. Does this, does this really work in real life? It did for Gandhi. A nation that tried to respond to aggression with aggression, it never worked. In fact, it caused them to be greater slaves until someone came following the standard of Christ. And Gandhi, even though he was not a Christian, adopted that standard, was inspired by that standard of non-aggression, and that's what gave freedom to his country. Does it work in real life? Well, 
It worked for Martin Luther King. And there's great freedom for a whole cast of people today because of his non-aggression. And it cost him a lot. But he would stand by it. It worked for Emily. A lot of you don't know Emily. I just came to know her recently. Uh, Emily grew up down in Houston and had a mother who was a drug addict. And because of that, her and her sister were put up for adoption when they were very young children. And they were adopted off into separate families, not to see each other again for decades. And, and the family that Emily was adopted into was kind of a rough situation also. And she grew up not having any kind of faith in God. In fact, she would call herself an atheist. She went to school, went to college, got her teaching degree, and she began to teach school in East Texas. And while she was there, there was a principal, uh, a, a guy by the name of Angel uh, Rivera was his last name. And Angel uh, was a Christian, and he began to teach, he was a principal, her principal, and he began to teach a leadership course based on biblical principles. She was so upset about it that she reported him to the ACLU to try to get him fired. And uh, it was a pretty rough time there between the two of them. And finally, the curriculum was uh, taken out of the school system there. Well, uh, time went on, and she went back to Houston to be with family that was there. And uh, Pastor, uh, rather, Principal Rivera went to Mansfield to be a principal there. Meanwhile, her mom, uh, who had been a drug addict, her biological mom finally died, and a lot of other things were going on in her life. She just wanted to get away from Houston. And so she actually came to the Mansfield area, and uh, the principal heard about her there, and he reached out to her, and he assisted her as she found a job in that system. And, and during that time, he became a friend with hers, and, and so did his wife. And she had health problems with some of her family members, and there were some other things going on, and they reached out to her, invited her into their home. And over about a six-year period, they tried to witness to her from time to time, and, and she was so against all of that that many times that uh, attempt ended in an argument. But they just kept on loving on her and kept reaching out to her, which really bewildered her. And then one day, the principal's wife gave her a link to some online teaching about Christ. And she heard a message and for the very first time realized that there was a God and that he wanted to have a relationship with her. Fast forward, uh, about a year ago, we had the privilege of baptizing Emily here in our church. And uh, her and the principal and his wife are now attending the same life group. Isn't that cool? And it's very ironic, uh, recently she found out that her sister that she was separated from in adoption is actually attending our real life campus in Austin. <laughs> now someday when you get to heaven, you ask Emily if uh, turning the other cheek is worth it. One slap on the face, if it would be worth it if one person, one person, would come to know the love of God. Ask her if a coat that will pass away would be worth somebody having their attention drawn to the fact that something's different in the way that they're responding to. Ask her if she would walk a mile so somebody would spend eternity not separated from God. 
Yeah, it works in the real world. And I would submit to you that it worked in your life already. In 1 Peter, the second chapter, in verse 2 it says this, or rather in verse 19. For this founds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed I guess it works that's why we're here today while we were still sinners while we were enemies of God Christ died for us he did more than turn the other cheek. He allowed every last drop of his blood to be shed for those who were aggressive toward him. And he left God to be the judge, even while hanging on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them. They really don't understand what they're doing. Yes, it works. Now, you have to be led by the Holy Spirit to know what to do and when to do it, how much to give and when to restrain from giving. But I think it's something we all need to hear today, don't you? Because it's not the ethics of the world. And it's certainly beyond the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth that the courts are to carry out. That's not our job. It was a job delegated to the courts by God himself. Ours is to have a limited generosity that's not limited by our rights or someone else's merits, but only what is good for others and would bring glory to God. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for challenging us. Thank you for getting us to be a little off balance, to think about some things in a different way than maybe we were taught growing up or that our emotions tell us to do. Help us to instead allow your word to be our standard and your Holy Spirit to be our guide. Give us wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.